Please pray with me. Lord God, thank you for the gift and blessing of this day. Thank you for the beauty of your creation, Lord, and the beauty of this place where you have given us to worship. We pray, Lord God, that as we come to you on this Sabbath day, that you would speak to us, that you would give us your peace, that you would break down our defenses, Lord, and that you would free us from oppression. We pray for healing, for life, for joy, and for forgiveness of sins, Lord God. And we pray that your presence would be palpable this morning among us. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Morning. Morning. It is just dynamite to see you all this morning. Well, when I was a kid, my kids got on a kick about pushing manners at the dinner table. Did you guys ever have that? Your parents do that with you? No manners? Your kids were wonderful. What about your parents? Do they make you do that too? So they thought, my parents thought this would be a good thing to do, to really study. You know, and manners are good, right? Like, generally, they're good, right? They help us. Right? We don't eat with the bottoms of our feet, you know, because that's gross, right? We don't trim our mustache in the buffet line, right? There's things we don't do, right? Because there's just proper manners, right? Like, so my parents, in their indoctrination of us, they decided that every night that we ate dinner together, we would read from uh, Miss Manners' book or something. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah, I think it was Miss Manners, too. Uh, it was painful, nonetheless. My brother and I, uh, as soon as the book came out, we would, it would be greeted with a chorus of groans, right? Not the book, right? Because we knew we stood condemned under the book. Right? It was never going to encourage us on anything. It was always going to be condemnation. So, my parents hit upon an idea. Their idea was that to incentivize this proper behavior at the dinner table, if you caught someone else breaking a rule, they owed you money, and then you got paid, right? It was never very much. It was like 25 cents or something like that for an infraction. But you could rack up quite a few infractions in a meal in our house. I'll tell you that right now. And so my brother and I took, I mean, we wholeheartedly grabbed a hold of this. We thought, whoa, this is a great way to make money. You know, catching people in their sin. And so, uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure, though, this breaks the manners rule. I'm pretty sure one of the manners is not to point out other people's bad manners. I think that's proper decorum. But nonetheless, this was our thing. And so I hit really uh, kind of the apex of this whole event or this period of time in my life was when we visited my parents, my dad's parents in New Orleans. And they were a very proper southern family. Much like me, right? And so we were there in their, we were there in their dining room, very formal, chandelier kind of thing, like table had been waxed and, you know, very polished, very like nice. And they're all dressed up. My grandmother especially was very, very proper. And there we are at dinner, eating our, our meal together. And in the midst of the meal, I jumped to my feet and I pointed across the table and I said, Grandma, elbows on the table, 25 cents, you owe me. Right? My mother went ashen as a sheet, right? And my grandmother, 
my grandmother for a moment was totally taken aback, surprisingly. But then in a little bit, she started laughing because for her it was, you know, she loved manners, right? So this was, she saw this as a subtle victory. Even though she was going to owe 25 cents, she felt like she was winning the war. That was the height and kind of the end of the manners experiment in our house, I think. I think after that, my parents were like, all right, you know enough at this point. We're going to just relax on this, pointing out other people's faults. But those rules, those manners, those kind of social norms that we have are helpful. They can be helpful. But they're also regionally, they're contextual too, right? It won't work in Nigeria to do the same thing. They have different manners, different rules, different ways that they carry out their life. But sometimes we make those rules so important. Sometimes those rules that we have cooked up become so central to us that we lose track of where we are in the rest of the world and where we are in our own lives. And sometimes they become barriers to relationship, right? Manners can easily become judgment, can't it? The way certain, the way you're supposed to dress, the way you're supposed to act, the way you're supposed to talk, those can be things that separate us from other, others rather than being unifying things or things we can see beyond or through. We see that in our gospel passage for today. In the 13th chapter of Luke, we are introduced to a Saturday morning service in the synagogue. The place where the Pharisees, the synagogue is the place where the Pharisees would go to worship the Lord on the Sabbath. So here we are in the synagogue and Jesus is teaching. And what is Jesus teaching about? We don't know. A passage doesn't tell us, so good answer. Well done, all of you who said nothing. Uh, Jesus, we're not sure what he's teaching because this entire passage is taken over by an event in the midst of his teaching. And that is a woman walks in who is oppressed by a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. So there is this demonic oppression going on in her life that she is possessed by this spirit that causes her to be bent over and crippled quite unable to stand up straight, our passage says. She's been in that place for nearly two decades, hobbled by her disease. Jesus sees this woman, and she doesn't ask for anything. She doesn't come to him and say, please heal me. She doesn't interrupt the service or try to interrupt the service. She just walks in and Jesus stops, sees her, and calls her to himself. She comes over and then when he's there, when she's there in front of him, he lays his hands on her and he says to her, woman, you are set free from your ailment. Then he lays his hands on her and immediately she is healed and she stands up straight and praises God. This is a miraculous event and of course everybody is happy about it, right? No? No? Why? I mean, seriously, every preacher wants this, right? You're preaching and suddenly somebody's like, boom, I'm healed. Praise the Lord, right? That's a pretty good, I mean, that gives kind of that, you know, the extra bump to your sermon, right? But that's not, that's right, yeah, we see this uh, miraculous healing that Jesus does, but not everyone's happy, and why aren't they happy? Yeah, it's not the way it's supposed to be done. Right? It's not the way it's supposed to be done. The leader of the synagogue is incensed. 
he keeps calling out over the rejoicing woman. So you, there's like two voices quarreling, right? One is the woman saying, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, I'm healed, I'm healed. And the other is this leader of the synagogue trying to shout her down. It's, it's kind of like our political process in some ways. Um, trying to shout her down and saying, wrong, wrong, this is not when it's supposed to happen. There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. This would be kind of like if, for instance, like, I don't know, um, some people decided to paint the inside of the church on a Sunday morning. During the service, right? You know, they come in, start setting up scaffolding as the readings are being done, and as we're trying to do our music, and they're painting away and talking, and... Like, the, I would be upset as the leader of the church, right? I'd be like, hey, guys, choose another day. There are six other days you could have picked to do this. Do it then. That's how this leader of the synagogue sees it. Look, there's plenty of other time to do it. Don't do it right now. Don't do it on the Sabbath. This is the Lord's day. Jesus is cured on the Sabbath. And according to the Pharisees, on the Sabbath, you could save a life but you could not heal. All right, what's the difference? Okay, save a life is, for instance, somebody in the synagogue chokes on something. You can do the Heimlich maneuver, right? That would be acceptable. But you can't, like, prescribe medication or or do something like that. You know, you can't say, like, well, let's talk about getting better or something, you know, or do some, like, work that's just maintenance. Maintenance doesn't get done, right? If it's an emergency, you can take care of it. But if it's just something else, nah, you wait for another day. Wait for the, wait for tomorrow. Does that make sense? There's some fine hairs being split here, okay? And there are certainly, uh, if you want to entertain yourself, and if you've got an eye for reading, uh, there are pages and pages and pages written about this, which is really interesting, rabbinical discourses about what's okay on the Sabbath, what's not. Right? How much can you carry? You can carry your spoon, but you can't carry a sheaf of grain. But if your spoon is on the sheaf of grain, you can carry it because you need to move your spoon. Right? There's, I mean, it's, it's really interesting. Super interesting. There you go, exactly. So there's lots of fascinating discourse on this, and they, they talked about it very much. And so Jesus, according to those rules, had done something wrong. He had healed on the Sabbath. And according to this, the Pharisees, that was not our right. And we all know where in the Bible they were quoting, right? When they said it's not okay to heal on the Sabbath, right? Because the Bible says very clearly, don't heal on the Sabbath, doesn't it? No, it doesn't say that, actually. It doesn't say that. There are many teachings on the Sabbath, but I'll give you the commandment here. Exodus 20, 9 through 10 says, Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You are your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. No work. Honor the Sabbath. That's right. And it's really interesting because remember how that passage began. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Your work. And so here they're accusing Jesus of doing work on the Sabbath and breaking it. But if you look at the commandment itself... It's the prohibition against doing your work. What if he works one day on and six days off? 
Right, there you go. There's all kinds. You would make a great rabbinical discourser. Well done. Now, the injunction is against doing work on the Sabbath, is what the Pharisees are saying. Yet the commandment in Exodus only speaks about one kind of work, and that is your work. Your work. Right, your work, you got six days to do your work. The seventh day, that's the Lord's day. It's the day to do his work. His work. And that's what Jesus is doing. He is doing the Lord's work. And that work is to free this woman who has been bound for 18 years so that she can have a Sabbath rest as well. She has been bound by this demonic oppression for 18 years. 18 years. And Jesus sets her free so that she can worship him, follow the Lord, and find rest. Now, the Jews understood that this injunction against work on the Sabbath was different. I mean, they understood this this differentiation, right? Because the priest worked on the Sabbath. Somebody had to sacrifice the animals. Somebody had to keep the fires going. Somebody had to do that in the temple. Jesus is just tapping into that, but he doesn't allude to that. It's really interesting. Instead, he gives, he does this pattern, which he does quite regularly, of pointing to a lesser example. So he uses a lesser example to prove a greater point. He says each person who has an animal, an ox or a donkey, I think he says, if you got an ox or a donkey, what do you do with it on the Sabbath? You got to make sure it gets the water, right? Because otherwise, what happens? Yeah, it might die. I mean, it might be able to survive a day, right? But you take care of it. You care for it. That's right. The way he treats his critters. And so Jesus is saying, you all treat your critters well because you untie them on the Sabbath and you bring that ox or that donkey to the water so that they can get the water they need for the Sabbath. Even though that's work. Even though the untying is considered work. Even though the leading of the animal is considered work. It's acceptable because the animal needs to be cared for. And Jesus says, this woman has been bound by Satan For 18 years. She has been tied to the hitching post for 18 years, unable to get to the font, unable to get to the water of life, unable to get there because Satan has held her back, and I have untied her on the Sabbath and brought her to the water. Jesus says, you are set free from your ailment, and that is exactly what he has done. He has set this woman free from her demonic oppression, so that she can come to God freely, healed, and praise Him. The crowd loves it, right? crowd loves it. They love it when Jesus takes on the sticks in the mud. Right? They, I mean, they're like, yeah, you get them, Jesus! Right? And they're fired up to see this woman healed because she is praising God and that blesses their worship as well. To see the healing of God encourages them as Jews. But this leader of the synagogue, and there are others like him too, right? Because when Jesus addresses him, he says, you hypocrites. He's not just speaking to the leader of the synagogue. That's right. There are others who hold his view as well. He is speaking to them as well. You hypocrites. What about the leader of the synagogue and those hypocrites? What about them? Well, the reality is there's at least two crippled people in this story. 
right? One is this woman. And what happened to her? She was healed. She was healed. She came to Jesus, accepted his healing, heard his words, and her life was transformed. Now, the leader of the synagogue, what happened to him? He got put down. We don't know what happened to him, right? We don't know. All it says is when Jesus said this, all his opponents were put to shame. Put to shame. So he left. He left that day, that day of rest and worship to the Lord. He left that day upset, crushed, not knowing where to turn, not knowing what to do, feeling that he was justified. You see, this guy had insulated himself so cleverly with his own rules that even when he was looking face to face with God, his rules blinded him. His ways of doing things uh, inoculated him against the presence and power of God so that he couldn't rejoice when this woman was set free. There were two cripples that day. One was healed. One praised the Lord. One left that place changed. The other came looking good, came with the outside all put together. I mean, that's probably how he got to be the leader of the synagogue, right? You don't get it by being a mess, right? He probably was respected in the community, knew the scriptures, was good in discourse. And yet here he is, opposed to the plan and power of God. And we have no indication that his life changed. The reality is, is that you and I, we're a little like each of these characters, aren't we? We're a little hard to God and his work, and we're also desperately needy of his healing in our lives. My hope for us is that we will come to the Lord today, that we will come to him as cripples, confessing our brokenness, confessing our need for him, our desire to have our lives transformed and that we'll receive healing from him. It might be external healing, it might be of some ailment, or it might be something deeper inside of us. May we receive his healing and grace today because our Lord knows what it means to be a cripple. He was crippled for our salvation. He was beaten. He was crucified. And in his death, you and I are healed. May we come to the Lord today humbly, thankfully, and receive his healing in our lives. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you that you heal the cripple. Lord God, that you care for those who are downtrodden. Lord, that you do not leave us in our pain and in our sin. Lord God, we pray that you would heal us. Lord, as we wrestle with being like that leader of the synagogue, we pray that you would break us. Break us of our pride. Break us of our rules and regulations which which we have set set up apart from your scriptures, Lord. Break us of our love of that, Lord, and help us to love you and to love the people you have given us, Lord. We pray that your spirit would be poured out on us, 
Lord, that there would be healing, there would be life, there would be restoration in this place. That you would cast out the spirit of Satan, Lord, and that you would raise up your Holy Spirit. And we pray for life transformation among us, Lord God. May we be changed today by the power of your grace and love. And as changed and redeemed people, may we go out into this world and proclaim your good news of salvation and deliverance. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen.